I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Today on the Executives Exchange, we are privileged to feature one of Chicago's next generation of civic leaders, John Holmes, Chairman, President, and CEO of AAR Corp. With an illustrious career spanning over two decades in the aviation sector, Holmes is known for his strategic thinking, operational excellence, and effective leadership. Hear why John is bullish on Chicago, his advice for the next generation, and more. John, thanks for being here. It's so good to see you. You too, Margaret. Thanks so much. Yes, we're excited to talk to you. Um, I've learned some things about you in the research that I'm excited to talk to you about. So oh let's I just wait to find out what those are. Oh yeah, we'll get to it. I also have <laughs> a few things I want to talk to you about. So let's get into it. I want to start with your childhood. Where'd you grow up? Uh, that's an interesting question. We moved around a lot. Uh, I was born in Syracuse, New York. Then we moved to New Jersey. Then we moved to Dallas, then we moved to Atlanta, then we moved to Connecticut, and then we moved to Chicago when I was a junior in high school. So we were kind of, we were all over. Oh my we gosh, it's a lot before it's high school. It's a lot. My, my short answer would be Connecticut, just because that was kind of middle school and the first half of high school, so formative years, if you will. But uh, but yeah, we were, we were all over. Why'd you move so much? Uh, my dad uh, worked in commercial finance, and he just uh, anytime there was an opportunity for uh, for him uh, to move up, uh, for the most part, he took it. And um, the only tricky one was moving out here uh, to Chicago from Connecticut because I was a junior in high school, right? And that's it's tough. It's tough. It's really tough. And whenever we talk to people about relocating for AAR, I kind of always bring that up. Like, hey, it is possible to relocate an older child and have it and have it work out. Um, but he took me out. The nicest restaurant in the town that we were in in Connecticut was Pizza Hut. So he took me <laughs> he, he took me out to Pizza Hut, just me and him. And I knew something was up uh, and it wasn't going to be good. And he said, you know, I want to let you know I've got a great opportunity in Chicago and uh, I've accepted it, and we're going to move to Chicago. And I was all upset, not because um, uh, you know my friends or whatever, but I had just started dating this girl that I had wanted to date for a long time, and mm-hmm. uh, now I was going to have to leave. So anyway, uh, that's what finally brought us to Chicago. It is so hard to explain to a junior uh, in high school that your life is going to change a lot. <laughs> it is. I did get. I did negotiate a car out of it, so that was uh, that was a score. Pretty good. Yes. Um, so you got here and you stayed. I did stay. I did stay. Yeah. We uh, moved here in 1993 and I graduated high school in 95 and then went to college and and have stayed. And as you know, I've become an enormous fan of, uh, of our city. I know. And I want to talk about a bunch of that. Yeah. So um, you have a very interesting job that we also want to talk about. When you were a kid or maybe when you were in high school, what did you think you were going to do? Okay, this is going to sound hilarious, but it is true. I actually wanted to be a CEO. That okay. was like my my dream job. And I, I was thinking about this. I started my first, I was CEO of my first quote unquote CEO of my first business when I was nine years old. So I was in third grade and my grandfather had bought me a bunch of Radio Shack rechargeable batteries for my toys because I was always running out of batteries for my toys. This is when we were living in Atlanta. And all of a sudden I had all these batteries and I didn't have enough um, use for them. 
So I decided that I would lease them out to my sisters and my friends uh, for a weekly fee plus a recharge fee. And so I had a storefront set up on my bedroom door and I had signs and all this stuff, the weekly specials or whatever. And then, of course, there were different charges, like a C cell would be one charge and a D cell would be another one. Nine volts were at a real premium. And I had a shoebox on the door that you would drop off the battery that needed to be recharged and another shoebox that you could pick up a, a, a fresh battery. And that was JBC, John's Battery Company was the name. Oh, my gosh. And then we expanded. I, I, my two neighborhood friends, Kevin Houck and Ryan Sanderson, we expanded and started HHS Incorporated, which was Holmes, Houck and Sanderson. And we had divisions. We had a, a division home lending services, HLS. We would lend money to our friends at crazy interest rates. Um, we had a chocolate business where we would resell candy. We had um, lemonade stands across America, LSAA, where we would, I, I mean, it sounds hilarious, right? But we would set up a lemonade stand at one guy's house and then another one at the front of the neighborhood. So, so yeah. So, and of course, back then, HHS, I was the, the chairman and CEO. So I guess that's my, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Uh, that was the dream. That's incredible. Where did you grow up? Where'd you go to high school? Um, well, we, we, Split time. So we were in uh, Connecticut for the first two years of high school and then Barrington for the second two years. Oh, Barrington. And, and, and then this this was happening. Uh, these businesses were happening when I was in Atlanta and then actually a little bit in Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you moved here and then you ended up going to University of Illinois, which is also my alma mater. Yes. Wonderful school. So I'll tell you how I got there. So I mentioned that I moved here from Connecticut. Well, my college decisions probably weren't made for the best reasons. Um, so my first year, I went to the University of Richmond. And I oh. went to the University of Richmond because my two best friends from Connecticut, who I obviously um, had left because we moved here, yeah. that's where they went. So I went there to hang out with them. But um, another girlfriend story, I uh, was dating a girl from Barrington, and she went to the University of Illinois. So we did the long distance thing, which back then was hard, right? Because you really didn't oh, have really hard. Right? you didn't have right you didn't have FaceTime or anything like that. Um, and my parents would get these long distance phone bills that were just unbelievable. Um, so at the end of my freshman year, I was like, "Oh my gosh, uh, I can't I can't be away from you. You're it." And uh, I transferred to the University of Illinois, and she broke up with me about six weeks after I got there. <laughs> so. <laughs> I joke that it was it was absolutely the right decision because U of I is just an awesome school, but it was made for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, when were you there? Uh, 95, I'm sorry, 96 to 99. Oh, Did we overlap? Older than you. No, I graduated in 95. 95, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, but so we, bear, I, we were one of the test schools for email when I was there. So it probably was more up and running by the time you were there. But I remember yeah, email, yeah. you can get this email account and email your friends. And I was like, I, I don't have any, I don't know what this means. And exactly. I remember logging on and just closing out. I'm like, I don't even know what kind of message I would send or who I would send it to, having no well, idea what that well, was going to be. Let me say to. that. I remember um, when I went to Richmond, it was the first time, it was the first web page I had ever seen. Yeah. was and it was just fascinating i just couldn't believe that they had pictures of the school online and you could click these blue words and that would open up something else i mean it was just this amazing thing but of course it was slow as as, as all get yeah. out compared to what yeah. we have now obviously of course um what is one of your favorite places from university of illinois what was your favorite place on campus let's see we might Gosh, that's funny. 
legend. Mine was cams. So you Cam, know. Okay. Well, cams. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't cool enough to get into cams. Um, but you know, we, when I was there, a new bar opened up called Legends, and it was right across oh. the street from where our apartment building was. And um, we would hang out there a lot. And you know, I haven't been back to U of I in probably at least ten years. And I went, and I remember going back to Legends. Probably, gosh, it was probably like ten or twelve years ago. Went to a football game, and then afterwards, my friends and I were like, "Hey, let's go to Legends." And then when we were in there, standing around, ordering our beers, we kind of looked around, and that was the first moment that I realized. I'm old. Yeah. It's <laughs> just like, yeah, we're now, we're now we've become those old guys that the other, that the kids that are there look around going, okay, what are those guys doing in this bar? There are, something's wrong. But so, the yeah. drinks are so cheap. That's the thing. You're it's old. Great value. The whole bar. <laughs> great value. That's for sure. Great value. Yeah. Okay. So you studied finance. Was that part yeah. of an aspiration to be a CEO? Did you think that was going to be a good path? You know, it's interesting. Um, I, Chose finance. I'd always been interested in, um, in in business and money and investing and things like that. And at U of I, it was a really big. It still is a big oh, yeah. accounting school. And so most of the friends I had were doing accounting. But I, I I really enjoyed finance, and I had some great internships during college where I got to apply some of the financial things that I, the, you know, the financial modeling that I was learning. And um, uh, yeah, I just found finance a lot more creative and a lot more interesting than uh, than accounting. So I decided to go to go that path, but along the way, learned about what investment banking was. Um, And that that ultimately became, I kind of put the whole CEO thing aside for a while and really focused on on a career investment banking, which was short lived. Um, But that became the goal when I was in uh, when I was in college. And why was it short lived? Um, Well, so the banking model, and I believe it's still this way, you graduate and then you're an analyst. And this is one of those hundred hour a week jobs. You're an analyst, yeah, right. For, right? An analyst for back then, I think you can, a lot of people stay on and, and keep going. But that back then, um, the model was very much, you were an analyst for two, perhaps three years, but then it was expected that you would move on from the investment bank and go do something else and then potentially come back to the investment bank. So the standard track back then was two years as an analyst at a bank two years as a private equity analyst for a private equity firm. Then you would go back full time to get your MBA. And then you would likely go back to do one of those two things, either oh, yeah. uh, private equity or investment banking. And that's exactly the track that I was on um, until I uh, learned about a company called AAR. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to get into that in just a we'll second. Back to that, yeah. But anything that you learned as an analyst in investment banking that helps you as a CEO even today? When I was accepting the job or interviewing uh, and thinking about becoming an investment banking analyst, and I was really fortunate because I graduated in 1999, which back then, you know, it was kind of the start of the dot-com uh, craze. Oh, yeah. uh, it was, uh, there were a lot of opportunities in banking. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had a number of different off- offers, both in Chicago and in New York, and I was trying to decide um, where, I, where I was going to go. But along the way, a couple of people had told me in all these interviews, you know, hey, the best job out of college is being an investment banking analyst because you get five years, like getting five years worth of experience in two years. And what they fail to tell you is that's because you're basically working five years worth of work <laughs> in two years. So, I mean, it's a, it, it was. And I went to William Blair, as I think you know, and I had a very, very rewarding experience at that firm. And I, and I think that that firm uh, gave uh, 
more responsibility to the analysts than perhaps some of the other larger firms did at that time. And that's why I decided to go there. But to your question about what did you learn? I mean, it is, as the name would imply, it is very uh, intense uh, financial modeling. Uh, you get to think about capital markets. You get to think about capital structure. Um, and certainly you're thinking about mergers and acquisitions and how to raise money. And obviously in the role of a CEO, all of those things are incredibly important. And I yeah. think the, the most important uh, job a CEO has is, uh, is, is, is allocating capital and figuring out where the best place to deploy capital. And obviously having that foundation and rooted in financial modeling uh, is certainly helpful with making those decisions. Yeah. And they are such a great firm. Um, that was an exciting time to be there. What was the most exciting deal you worked on? Um, I worked on, and the deal itself wasn't as, as exciting, but it was who I got to know as a result. Uh, we did a private placement for the company Blue Rhino. They're the uh, propane exchange oh, company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you see them all over the place. This all is back over. There. I think uh, I have two in the yard right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, But that was a new uh, model, right? Because before you would take your propane tank and they'd have to fill it up for you at the filling station, which was actually a pretty dangerous activity. Yeah, right. Uh, so the guy that founded the company, a guy called Billy Prim, he came up with this propane exchange business, which reminded me of my battery exchange business back yeah, right. then. There you go. Um, and we did a private placement for them, so raised some money. But the reason why that uh, project was impactful was not necessarily the deal itself, as I mentioned, but the fact that I got to work uh, directly for a guy called uh, Dick Hiphart, who ran the investment bank at Illinois or at uh, William Blair at that time. And so I was able to develop a close relationship uh, with him. Yeah. And, um, that ended up being a, a very meaningful relationship in my career. Yeah. What an incredible opportunity. So early in your career. Yeah. He, uh, I'm not sure why, but he, he kind of co-opted me uh, to be his special project guy. And this was one oh, of his great. deals that he had an interest in. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. So you heard about this company, AAR. How'd you hear about it? What happened? There we go. Uh, great segue. So uh, Kiphart. Uh, so, oh. so I had actually left again on the analyst track, on the, the financial services track. I had done my two years at William Blair um, and had an opportunity to go work in private equity uh, at Bank of America. Bank of America had a private equity unit at the time. And so I was over there. I had only been there for about six weeks um, when Dick Kippart uh, called me up and said, hey, do you remember that company AAR? And I actually didn't, uh, but AAR was a William Blair client. And so Kippart said, uh, they're looking for a new head of M&A. And they asked me if I had any recommendations. So I gave him your name and you're going to get a call from their CEO. And um, I thought, well, wow, that's awesome that he thought of me for this. And sure enough, a few weeks later, I got a call and went in to interview, um, went into interview for, uh, for the head of M&A which basically was the only M&A guy at the company. Cause I was going to say, that's a huge title for two years into your career. Hey, it's all about titles, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I became director of mergers and acquisitions, which again, sounds great, but, yeah. um, but I was the only guy. The really cool thing, though, was I was reporting at that time directly to our uh, prior CEO, David Storch, which oh, again wow. kind of gave me a front row seat to, to, to everything, uh, to yeah. everything. Yeah. So the, the calculus there was, I can stay on the private equity path, or I could do something more unique and go work in industry, uh, report directly to a CEO of a public company, 
And that would be a story that I could use to ultimately get into business school full time, because that was still my plan to do a couple years at AAR, business school, and then likely go back into banking. Did you go to business school? I ultimately did. Yeah, I ultimately did. I did the executive program at the University of Chicago. Uh, Gosh, we have the same. I went to Illinois for undergrad. I went to University of Chicago for grad school. There you go. There you go. Did you do, which program did you do? I have a PhD in sociology. So like if business is over here, take the 180 flip. Uh, So (laughs) that's, um, that's like a real degree. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I was the president of the alumni board for two or three years. I just rolled off, but people would get emails from me and Scott Swanson Ford. He's like, is this you? I said, well, it's, they've sent it out as me, but it's not really me. And so oh, wow. people are getting really confused because they were getting emails from me from the executives club and then emails from me at University of Chicago. And I wasn't writing any of these emails, right? Emails were just going out. As You're going me. out, yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, very That's funny. Great. I go to events now and people will see my name tag and they say, I get your emails. <laughs> That's how I'm known around You're town. everywhere. You're everywhere. The email lady. So... Um, AAR has evolved a lot since you were a single-person M&A department. Um, tell us a little bit for those who are listening and maybe not know, might not know the totality of everything AAR does. What are your big differentiators in the market? What do you do? Explain a little bit for folks. Uh, sure. Um, so we're about a $2 billion company, a publicly held company, and we do three things. We sell parts uh, to the aviation industry, both in commercial as well as government. Uh, we repair uh, airplanes and airplane parts, and we do a lot of uh, uh, supply chain work, uh, largely for the government, where we take those first two things and put them together under long-term contracts. And so as airlines, and I'll talk about the commercial market in general, as airlines over the years have evolved and outsourced a lot of the maintenance work that they typically or historically would have done internally, companies like AAR, have, uh, have grown to do that work. And so we have about uh, 5,000 employees uh, in over 30 countries. And we do business with basically every airline you've ever heard of in some way. And even though in the scheme of things in the aviation industry, a $2 billion company is not among the largest companies, because of what we do and because of we're the only true standalone for what we do uh, and the largest in many of our markets, uh, it's really an interesting place to be because we box above our weight and we're well known to uh, all the large OEMs like Airbus and Boeing and uh, Honeywell. Uh, and, ev- and again, every airline uh, knows who we were and works with, knows who we are and works with us in some fashion. And that's all the commercial side. And then over the years, we have evolved and taken what we do well on the commercial side and applied it to government markets. So there again, as the U.S. government, for example, has looked to outsource its activities as they maintain aircraft and try to model commercial best practices, uh, they've turned to companies like ours to um, uh, employ some of those tactics. And so our government business has has grown grown as well. What other national governments do you work for? What are some of your other big? Uh, We do, um, outside outside the US, we do a fair uh, amount in the UK. um, Mm -hmm. And then we have some individual uh, contracts. Uh, We work with the Japanese Ministry of Defense, for example. We've done work in Australia over the years. Um, but, uh, at this point it's predominantly out of, uh, out of the U S. Yeah. So you did a tremendous amount of cross training, I would say while you were there, which I feel like whenever I talk to folks who are really successful, they had the benefit of that experience, right? So you worked in parts and training, integrated solutions, MRO. I mean, you were hopping all over the place. At what point 
was that part of a plan to be the CEO? Um, that's a great question. And if you if you look back, by the way, we should, I want to acknowledge that um, I accepted the job to um, come to AAR on the night of September 10th. And wow. I uh, resigned my job at Bank of America on the morning of 9-11. And so, as, as I don't even have to say, that was an extraordinarily difficult day for the country. But it was also an incredible day to leave a career in financial services and go work in aviation. Right. Right. And so I came to AAR to do this M&A job that I described. But it was the most difficult time in the company's history up until COVID. And, you know, for example, I accepted the job. Our stock was at $16 a share and it traded down to two dollars and eighty eight cents over the over the few weeks because uh, the industry, as you know, had just been ground to a halt. So uh, just going back to your question about cross training, what unintentionally happened is I came in to do all this M&A work. But the last thing AAR was going to be able to do at that point was go out and acquire companies because we were really just focused on our survival. And so the capital structure stuff that I mentioned earlier, the education, if you will, that I gained as an investment banking analyst, that really came uh, into focus because we were selling divisions, we were selling assets, we were restructuring our debt, we were doing all sorts of creative financial uh, maneuvers uh, just to keep the company out of bankruptcy back then. And so those first two years where I thought that I was going to be uh, doing acquisitions and in growth mode, we right. were in survival mode. And I couldn't have asked for a better experience because I got to learn all elements of AAR working across all different divisions. And, uh, you know, when you're in an intense environment like that, uh, it, it, you know, those translate into very powerful learning experiences that ultimately would come back when the company went through COVID. Right. Well, it is. It's the kind of experience you can't buy. You can't study it. I mean, it's something very special and not everyone gets the opportunity to do that. So for people who are listening, um, what are the one or two rotations that you recommend as critical to anyone who's aspiring to a higher leadership role? Like you got to go work on this side of the business for at least a year or two. Well, I think, um, I think, you know, if you think about companies, you know, split up between, you know, finance, marketing, and then operations. I think if you're going to end up running something, you've got to work in operations. Like you yeah. just have to understand the business of the business. And there's a lot of people that come up on the finance side, et cetera. And you see a lot of CFOs that end up as, as, uh, as CEOs of business. And I think that's fine. But uh, to come up through the operations side and understand how divisions and facilities uh, work, I think that gives you a much greater understanding of the, certainly of the business itself. But in a lot of ways, it kind of gives you street cred uh, right. with, all, with the broader team um, because because uh, you, you, you came up where they came up. And so I, uh, going back to the beginning, uh, did those first, you know, kind of year and a half or so of really focused on keep helping keeping the company uh, uh, afloat and working very closely with our corporate leadership, our CEO, et cetera, um, on uh, what we needed to do to keep AAR solvent. Um, but then after we knew we were going to make it, um, I had still planned to go back to business school full time. But our CEO, David, uh, said, you know, listen, you're doing a good job. You, um, uh, you you seem to like it. We like you. If you want to go to business school, go to business school and come back. If you want to go part time, we'll pay for it. Or if you want to try something else, uh, we were thinking maybe you would have an interest in going to run one of our operating units. And I was 26 at the time wow. and having 
you know, a business, my own PL and a team to work with. Yeah. I was like, wow, you know, when are you going to get this opportunity again? Right. And I had roommates, right? I was living in an apartment in downtown Chicago and my my roommates thought this would be really cool. So I remember talking to him about it, you know, at midnight or whatever, drinking a beer and saying, what do you think about this, guys? And uh, we all thought it was a great idea. So I decided to, to put off business school and ultimately moved into operations, uh, moved into one of the operating units as a general manager. And uh, that was a, as you can imagine, a tremendous learning experience. And that really, uh, it was a business that had been struggling. Uh, we made some basic changes and turned it around. And then I was given another operating unit that had been struggling. We made some changes and turned that around. Uh, and that just really set the course for ultimately the CEO opportunity. Were you public the whole time when you whole started time. there? All the way yes, through? the whole time. Yes. Through all of that challenge, given your private equity background, did you ever consider taking it private? <laughs> I joke now that people say, if you're, you know, you're 2 billion, you know, is it the right size to be public? And I joke, they ask me if I think about taking it private. I say, yeah, every 90 days before an earning call, I say, wouldn't it be great <laughs> if I didn't have to do this? It's true. Yeah. Um, so what was the most challenging time in your history between, uh, the aftermath of September 11th, COVID, something else? What was the most challenging period? Well, I think, um, so I've been CEO uh, a little over five years and it's been a really interesting five years. Um, my first year and a half, I was dealing with a, uh, a labor challenge actually. Uh, so now it's, it's very popular to talk about labor shortages, et cetera, but, uh, in the aviation industry, we've had a mechanic shortage for a really long time, uh, well before COVID. And my first year as CEO was the, the first year that that challenge really came into focus. And we had won a lot of work. And so we have hangars all over North America where we do uh, heavy maintenance on aircraft, you know, 737s, A320s, other aircraft uh, for, again, all airlines you've heard of. Um, they, we bring the aircraft in. And uh, we tear them apart, we repair them, we put them back together, and they, uh, they go off to the customer. Um, it's a bit of a seasonal business because the most popular time to fly during the year, as you might expect, is the summer. And so during the summer, our hangars empty out, we flex down our workforce, and then in the fall, after flying all summer, the aircraft come back in. And we typically would go out and hire a bunch of contract labor to start working in the fall. Well, the fall of my first year of CEO, I took over June 1st. Um, we had signed up a bunch of work. We had given very optimistic projections to Wall Street. And we went out to the market in the fall to hire our, the mechanics, as we always would, uh, to start working on the aircraft. And we couldn't find them. We couldn't find them. Hmm. And to this day, I'm not exactly sure what created that acute uh, event that year. This yeah. is back in 2018. Um, but we couldn't get people. And so we, I missed my first two quarters. And that's the one thing you don't want to do is miss quarterly earnings. I missed my first two quarters. We had to lower our guidance pretty meaningfully. We had to turn away all this work because we couldn't get people, wow. which upset our, which put our customers in a difficult position. So that was a real challenge, but that really made workforce development and recruiting and partnering with schools, et cetera, very personal to me. So that was kind of the first year, half, first year and a half. Um, we had some other kind of internal issues that I was, I was working through. And then obviously in, um, in February of 2020, uh, COVID uh, became a real yeah. thing. And, you know, COVID obviously was devastating for the aviation industry, right? Um, I'm, we had, you know, I talk about 9-11 and 9-11 was, was obviously incredibly challenging for our country and the world for so many reasons, but airspace was shut down for a few days. 
and COVID, it was shut down for months and there, and it wasn't clear how we were going to come back. Um, unfortunately the government stepped in and, uh, AAR actually played quite a role and me personally played in quite a role in helping draft uh, legislation for the CARES Act, et cetera, to benefit airlines and major contractors like ourselves. Uh, without that, I mean, the industry would have collapsed. Um, yeah. And so that was a very difficult time. In a way, it was somewhat easier than the labor challenges because everybody was going through it. And so you weren't alone, whereas when we were dealing with the labor challenges, we were one of the few. And so that was an AAR issue, whereas COVID was an industry issue. But it was still right. an unbelievably challenging time and a very, very difficult time for our people because obviously we had to um, downsize the company very significant, very right. significantly during COVID. You didn't have to explain so much why you missed your quarter. Everyone knew why you missed your quarter. You no, know, it's funny. I, I was I was actually joking with somebody the other day because I, in a way I kind of missed those days because you get on an earnings call and the analyst would be like, "Hey, you know, we're thinking about you. Yeah, know. You know, hang in there. You're gonna make it. You know." And that was like this really nice thing that wouldn't it be great if that was that came back? But yeah, yeah, no, it's very different now. <laughs> now it's back to normal. Has um, the workforce for airline mechanics bounced back? Um. So uh, broadly, no. Um, in wow. fact, it's been exacerbated by COVID because you had two things. One, you had, uh, as you would expect, lots and lots of early retirements out of the industry. So right. the airlines had to bring their workforces down. You had people that probably had several years left to work and uh, they got packages and exited as a result of COVID because no one, um, I think some airlines got it, got it quite right. But uh the, the speed with which the industry recovered, what I think was surprising to a lot of us. And obviously we're benefiting from that now. Um, but then in addition to the early retirements during COVID, when the aviation industry was significantly challenged, it's not like you had a lot of kids waking up going, I want to be an aircraft mechanic right. because uh, it wasn't clear what the future was going to be. So you had a decline in people entering the space. So you had it uh, on both sides, you had an exit and then a decline of new entrants. Um, so that's, and on top of that, you've uh, had a very, very rapid recovery. So the workforce uh, supply has been uh, constrained um, or stressed significantly. Um, I think that things have stabilized. Um, it's now clear what the demands are going to be in terms of talent as the, as the worldwide fleet grows. And companies like AAR, and I'd like to think that we were one of the leaders in the industry in this, have really started to lean in and get creative about how to recruit uh, new kids um, uh, for careers in aviation. And being an aircraft mechanic is a career that ultimately pays very well. These are very high yeah, paying right. jobs. Yeah, they're very high paying jobs now, higher higher than ever. And they're going to be around for decades and decades. These are not jobs that can necessarily be displaced by technology. They can be enhanced and made more efficient by technology, but you need people to climb in and outside of aircraft in order to do these repairs. Uh, and the way the fleet is projected to grow, you're going to need hundreds of thousands of more people over the next 20 or 30 years than we have today to do these jobs. I mean, there are a lot of labor economists that are predicting these kinds of um, highly skilled trades are going to increase a lot. And especially as the cost of college goes up and people are looking at the ROI and that and thinking, what really do I need to go do this? Um, we might start to see things switch. We'll see. I, Margaret, I think you're exactly right. And um, I, I think you're exactly right. And like, do I want to go spend $400,000 to go get a degree and I don't know where that's going to go? Or I could go do this other thing 
make a hundred thousand dollars and then, you know, maybe go pivot to something else later. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And you're, you're definitely seeing that. That's been part of, part of the thing that we've tried to do is, is get into uh, and help develop these trade programs, et cetera. Um, yeah. cause, uh, to your point, they are, it's a, it's a, it's a much more assured path, uh, than, than, um, you know, a, a general liberal arts degree that might be a lot more expensive. And really interesting for someone who's like engineering inclined and mechanically inclined, like these are, um, very complex jobs. It's not like you're just sitting on an assembly line, like, you know, doing the same movement for 10 hours. Exactly. I mean, and, and working on aircraft, of course, I've got a pretty strong bias here, but you go in our yeah. facilities and our hangars and there's a lot happening. And, oh, yeah. uh, these are big aircraft and it's, it, um, it, and it's a, it's a, it's an intense environment, right? Because, uh, you have to be uh, extraordinarily safe and accurate um, as it relates to quality in everything that we do because you're working on aircraft, you're dealing with safety of flight. Um, right. And so with that comes an incredible amount of responsibility, but it's definitely, it's an exciting environment. I love visiting our sites. Um, I always get annoyed when people are frustrated because their flight is delayed for parts or something. It's like, well, what would you like them to do? Would you like them to just take off with this piece of the plane missing? Or, you know, <laughs> they're like, you know, so indignant. It's like, well, you know. Things go. But if you think about it, I, I've developed an enormous respect for airlines themselves. Obviously the whole aviation industry, but airlines themselves. I mean, they yeah. are incredibly complicated businesses to run. I mean, think about it. It's labor intensive. It's capital intensive. It's technology in every, you know, in every way. You've got regulations. If you're an international carrier, the amount of regulations that you have to follow. I mean, you're governed by international treaties. Um, and then you have these X factors like weather um, or a passenger that gets sick or decides they don't want to get off the aircraft. So you can have the most well choreographed supply chain on planet Earth. And one of these X factors throws it off and it sets right. off a chain reaction that, you know, impacts thousands of passengers. So honestly, I mean, like you, I get annoyed when people get frustrated. Um, and then I also think it's actually remarkable that things run on time as frequently as they do because of all of those things that have to work. Yeah. Um, you recently bought a software business. We did buy a software business. Is it related um, to this? Uh, it is, it is. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm super excited about the software company that we bought. I, um, I personally have been working on that project for 10 years, uh, for 10 years. We've been trying to convince, uh, trying to convince the owners of that business to sell to us. And, um, we finally got it done in March and, um, what it is, it's a, it's a maintenance ERP system. So airlines, they have to run the maintenance organization, right? They have to keep their parts repaired. They have to keep track of what's inventory on the shelf, on what's on the shelf. They have to keep track of where that inventory has been repaired, what's on the airplane, how many hours it's been on the airplane, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the software that, um, uh, over a hundred airlines representing over 5,000 aircraft use to keep track of all this stuff. So we are the hardware, we are selling physical parts and actual yeah. repairs, and they are the software used by airlines to buy what we sell. And putting those two things together, we believe is going to be a really exciting combination over, over a period of time. I can't get into something, but and we're already seeing that where I was at some meetings yeah. this weekend and uh, had some just outstanding conversations with some of our airline customers about uh, the possibilities as a result of this merger. And I, I can't get into specifics, but the thesis of putting our company together with theirs is at least in the early days so far playing out very well. Oh yeah. Cause now you're more than a product or a service provider. You're becoming a platform. 
for these. That's right. That's customers, right. And, you know, and and digitization in the industry, I just think is a is an enormous opportunity. But um, if you think about the data that you're collecting as a result of supporting 5,000 aircraft, and there's really three software systems that do what what ours does. Um, the two other ones and then us, we believe we have the best solution in the market, but this business was, it was a small business. Um, they had this spectacular software. They've been around for over 20 years and have been used by some of the best airlines in the world. Um, but they were still a hundred guys in Miami and they needed capital. They needed, uh, to your point, a platform to really expand. And what we are doing now is introducing them to the large carriers that we work with, uh, to get them to the next level. And so the amount of, of, data that flows through their system um, uh, is, is exciting. It's owned by the airlines, but ultimately we believe that there are opportunities to convince the airlines to aggregate and pull data in an anonymized way so yeah. that um, uh, uh, parts in the supply chain can become more reliable. And because we're the largest independent for what we do, and I say independent because um, some of our competitors, some of our larger competitors are a Boeing or airlines actually have third-party maintenance activities. So we're not an airline and we're not an OEM like mm -hmm. Boeing. Uh, we're the largest independent. Uh, we think that, that that neutrality gives us a really unique opportunity to, to, uh, to bring this software to market and leverage uh, the opportunities that we see from the data collection. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. I love your passion for aviation. You probably know more than any single person in our entire city about the airline industry. So give us some inside baseball on the new terminal at O'Hare. Obviously it's going to be a huge asset to the city, but what's something everyone might not know or what's something you want to be sure people know that isn't being written about or just anything? Well, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure if I've got unique insight here. What I would highlight is, um, is exactly what you said that O'Hare is an incredible asset for the city of Chicago. And I know that there's a lot of people right now that are concerned about the future of Chicago and there are statements like, what if we become Detroit? What if we become that? But assets like O'Hare um, uh, are, are, are hard to come by. There aren't too many airports with the reach in the world, let alone the United States that okay. O'Hare has. And on that note, um, I think that if you've looked at the plans for the international terminal and the designs um, uh, that are in place and the speed with which you will be able to get out of your car and get to your gate, uh, it's absolutely going to be world-class. Um, the project, as you know, is already taking a lot longer than it, uh, it's supposed to, but once it gets completed, um, it's really, really going to be an even greater asset for the city. Yeah. Um, is there anything about it that you were personally involved in? Uh, no, no, that's, uh, that's, that's other that's side out of, of our that's out of our area that's out of our area yeah but you're located your offices are really close to O'Hare aren't they they are they are I'm uh, I'm out here right now watching planes depending on which runway they're using they they come in low right across the building so it's inspiring 
Yeah. <laughs> I grew up out there off of Irving Park Road uh, in Bloomingdale, which is just like one or two towns down. And uh, so we were on such a flight path and it was really fun watching all the planes growing up. And now I live off of Irving Park Road in the city. And so the I'm city. getting them. Get them there I basically have never left Irving Park Road, basically. <laughs> Either Great in the street. Western suburbs oh, yeah. or downtown. Yeah. So yeah. I want to pivot a little bit to your civic work because you are one of this next generation's most engaged civic leaders. You do so much that I'm sure people aren't even aware of. But I want to start with um, one of your first boards, Columbia College of Chicago. You're on the board of trustees. You're now the chair of the board. Tell us why this organization is so important to you personally, but also to the city of Chicago. Uh, thank you. That's a that's a great question, and um, uh, that's that was my first nonprofit board was was uh, Columbia College, and I go back to William Blair and Dick Hippard. He was actually the chair uh, before he passed away of Columbia, and he's the guy that introduced me to that board. And I hadn't necessarily thought about joining the board of a college, but as I learned more and more about Columbia, um, it is such a unique and special place. And there's a lot of liberal arts colleges out there that are outstanding. But in a lot of ways, they're a variation on the same theme. Uh, Columbia is is a exciting is a very exciting place. Um, the the thing that absolutely drew me uh, to the college originally, but then also um, uh, to make the decision to to take on the role as chair is the students. They are so engaging. They are so poised. They are so creative. Uh, my wife and I co-chaired the first gala that Columbia had. Um, back in December of last year was the first gala they had had in 10 years. And the students produced it. They actually made it a course for the students where they, um, because uh, uh, it's a school for creatives, uh, oh, where right. they, uh, got, they got course credit for producing the event. And it was incredible. And so it's a, uh, uh, it, it attracts a very diverse uh, student population. As yeah. I mentioned, it's a student, it's a, it's a school for creatives. Um, the, whether it's dance, whether it's theater, whether it's music, whether it's business, um, whether it's uh, uh, CGI, um, there, there are so many things being taught at the college that uh, it, it, the, the range of opportunities there is remarkable. And the campus is spectacular. There's so many people in Chicago when I say, oh, it's Columbia College, they're like, yeah, I've seen the signs because yeah. their entire campus really occupies the South Loop. They've got uh, a couple dozen building, buildings uh, all over the city. And so if you're going to go to school in Chicago, it's a pretty, it's about as Chicago, Chicago experience that you can get. Um, but uh, the short answer is the students, the students, and it's a, every interaction I have, I think, my gosh, you know, I can't believe how switched on these kids are. Uh, yeah. And I was nowhere near that when I was 18 or 19 years old. Yeah. Um, you're right about it being such a quintessential like Chicago experience. My husband went to Columbia and then, you know, I was in a sorority at university. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. We could not have had different college experiences. I'm on like big 10 <laughs> campus sorority, you know, games. He's at Columbia living. Um, oh, he had an apartment like by where Rush Hospital is oh, yeah, yeah, off of Taylor yeah. Street and just yeah. like going to underground clubs and just, you know, way more sophisticated working in the film lab until midnight and then, you know, going to art bars and all this stuff. Let's go. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I'm assuming any person that I've met that's a alum of Columbia College only has wonderful things to say about the school and the experience. So he loved it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. He absolutely loved it. Yeah. Well, he was in film and then, okay. um, you know, talk about timing. So I think the year after he graduated, film changed. It's like he was editing on film, right? Like, yeah, like actual film, film, right. And that, 
changed immediately. And Chicago went through a dip in the film industry. So that also a lot of stuff left Chicago when a lot of other states and Canada were really building up um, their film industry. So he quickly pivoted to graphic design and marketing and used all those skills for that. It's uh, well, it's interesting that you say that because the skills that come out of there, um, part of the goal of having the gala was, and we'll be having another one this year on November 30th. That's a plug. Um, November 30th. There we go. The college 30th. gala. The, uh, the students put together um, activation sta- stations where they demonstrate some of the things that they're learning. Um, and so whether it's the, the, the graphic design or augmented reality, um, uh, I know one of the companies that attended the gala last year went and we're talking to the augmented reality students and they're like, holy cow, we had no idea that this was being taught here. They could join our, our practice tomorrow. Um, yeah. So there's so many good things that are going, um, going on at the school and we just want to get that story out as best we can. That's incredible. I mean, if you really want to know how connected our lives are, my brother's first job was an aviation mechanic. He went to Southern Illinois University for we, aviation. We love SIU. That's one of our favorite places to recruit. One of our favorite places. To... <laughs> and then he too went into marketing. No, he worked for <laughs> Delta for 20 years. He went into the marketing side. He also got a, he went for an executive MBA, I think at Georgia Tech, because he was living in Atlanta working for Delta. And then Delta is one of our, uh, I'll be down there a uh, week after next, actually. It's one of our, one of our biggest customers. Um, really funny. He brought us into, when I was little, I was like maybe nine or 10 years old and he was like showing us around and the flight simulators were just open, you know, and he let us play with it. And I was like crashing planes into things. He got so written up for that. They were like, do you know how expensive this is? Do you know that that just cost us? And it was some like insane amount of money. I don't remember what it was, but he's like, I really didn't know. I thought they could just play around. That's amazing. Well, the flight, it's interesting that you say that because flight simulator time is a really significant dynamic in the yeah. industry right now because there aren't enough of them to train pilots. And I've only, I've only had the opportunity to go in one, um, a real one, uh, once, and they are incredible. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the, what's able to be simulated there and how close to real life it is, is just, it's, it's remarkable, really remarkable. Um, and we're fortunate that that technology exists to help uh, train our pilots. Oh, I know for sure. And not 10 year old girls who just, I, and, yeah, but I, I believe me, I, 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 I would, uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd be there too if I had access to one. So there is a lot of concern about this next generation of CEOs. You know, they're not all, um, built like you. They're not being as civically engaged as you are. Uh, a lot of the civic organizations, uh, worry about the future of their boards and just the civic community, not just in Chicago, but everywhere. I would love your perspective on this and what you think all of our organizations can and should be doing to further engage CEOs like you. Thanks for the compliment. Thanks for the question. I think that this is, I I actually share the concern and I've made it a bit of a personal uh, mission of mine to try to get those uh, who have been successful in business to lean in more, uh, more civically. And, um, you know, it's interesting The COVID experience made my wife and I, my wife's on a number of boards as well. Um, just a lot more patriotic about Chicago. I mean, yeah. it's a great place and you've had so many people here that have built businesses, built careers, accumulated wealth. And we candidly were disappointed with the number of people who said, gosh, you know, I've had this great life. I've been so successful. I probably could not have achieved all of this anywhere else, exactly. but Chicago. And then we have a tough 18 months and I'm moving to Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, or I want to move to Florida when I sell my business because the tax rate's lower, exactly. even though I could not have ever built that business to that point in Florida. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I was at an event 
last week with uh, Governor Pritzker, and I know he knows all of this. Um, and I've been fortunate to have a couple conversations with our new mayor as well. And so hopefully uh, these kinds of decisions um, uh, you know, we'll be able to talk people out of things like that in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so getting back to the question of, um, of, of you know, this generation, um, my hope is that uh, um, that the, the, the climate for that will change, um, that some of the success, whether it's around public safety, whether it's around the fiscal progress that we've made in the state, that that will um, give people the confidence that they need uh, to continue to, to, to stay here and invest here. And that we'll see um, more uh, CEOs leaning in, uh, leaning in civically. But it's interesting. I mean, my early days at William Blair were formative in this regard because William Blair being a Chicago, Chicago firm, uh, mm-hmm. so many of the partners there obviously had done very well financially and wanted to give back. And that was just part of the culture. And so um, I think we need more leaders and more companies uh, to live that way and encourage their employees to get involved in these things and back them up. You know, if you have a member on your team that is on a nonprofit board and they're going to donate $2,500 to an event, then have the company match that uh, right. if it's an event that fits with the company's value. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I hope we see more of that. So you're all in in Chicago in so many ways. You're also raising your kids in the city. So am I. Anyone who knows me knows that I will make my pitch for why we should continue to raise our kids in the city. Uh, The suburbs are lovely. I was raised in the suburbs. I have nothing against the suburbs. I have a lot of friends in the suburbs. But it is also important that we have these communities in the city. So give me your best pitch for why you're raising your kids in the city. So, Margaret, again, you and I are living parallel lives (laughs) because uh, we – we, like you, made the decision to be in the city. We have four young sons, ages 10 down to four. And um, it's a big commitment. It's a lot of work on logistics. It's a lot of, um, it's a lot of work to get your kids in the schools that you want them to be in. Um, and it's expensive. So it's not an easy thing to do. But the reason my wife and I, we've talked a lot about this, and I'll be honest, every so often we revisit the decision. The we re- do too. Yeah. Um, uh, there are definitely days where we're like, geez. Um, and certainly the public safety element right now is is on all of our minds. You want to make sure yep. you feel safe walking to school. But, you know, the benefits of just the diversity in the city, being able to be exposed to so many different people from so many different backgrounds, um, as well as just the broad portfolio of activities that can match um, the interest or ability level of your kid that you have in the city um, yep. are, are really second to none. And since we are so fortunate to be here in this world-class city with all these world-class resources, um, we chose to, to be right in the center of it all. And yep. so far it's, uh, so far it's working out. I know. I agree. I mean, the importance of diversity goes both ways. It's so important for the kids to be exposed to these things, to grow up, to be good, you know, citizens and recognize, um, what that takes. But also, um, when you move to places that are everyone's the same and it's all isolated. Like it changes you as a parent too. Like I have friends who've gone out to the suburbs and they've said, you know, I, I do feel like I've changed. I am more fearful. Uh, I only hang out with people who are more like me. Like I'm just not as exposed to these other things and it's just so easy. And especially today now with uh, our social media being so segregated and isolated and we only now talk to people who share our views and who look like us and act like us and have the same hobbies. And even more important that we are surrounding ourselves every day with a 
hugely diverse group of people and that we're exposed to all different cultures and walks of life and everything. Exactly. Education comes in lots of ways and seeing those things every day um, makes a difference. But let's be honest, it's really because we want 200 restaurants to DoorDash from. That's that's the real reason. For sure. Um, So I heard you brought bees to your company's headquarters. We did. We did. Um, That's, uh, I've become a little bit of a bee fanatic actually. We've got uh, a little place over in Michigan, about 90 minutes outside of the city, and it's in uh, farm country. And we actually have bees over there. And through that, I got to know a company called, uh, an organization called Hive Supply. And they've got a unique model where, you know, bees are in danger, right? The bee population is, yeah. uh, is declining, pesticides, et cetera. There's a lot of reasons. And, uh, but bees are important. Uh, we're not going to be able to eat food without bees because we need pollinators. And um, so, uh, this company, they've got an interesting model where they employ, um, uh, uh, I would say, people uh, from socioeconomic backgrounds where uh, you know employment is important. They employ people to look after the hives, and then um, they take a portion of the honey that they sell uh, to raise to raise money, obviously, to, to fund the operation. And then you get to keep a portion that you can uh, either use or or give out. So, uh, out in Michigan, we. We have three hives, each of which will produce this summer about 106 ounce jars of honey. So we're going to have 300 jars of honey. Um, and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with all this. By the way, it's delicious. And the other cool thing, honey, it's Is this different. for your kids? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah um, and, uh, uh, and so this company that's helping us in Michigan, we put eight hives on the roof of our AAR building. And uh, again, donated a bunch of it back to the company. But uh, we also uh, will have a event here at the facility a little bit later this month where we'll give out the AAR, uh, the AAR honey. And the other interesting thing Amazing. to know is honey is different throughout the year. So whatever's blooming in the spring is going to make honey taste like one thing. Whatever blooming oh, yeah. in July is going to make honey taste like another. And whatever blooming in the fall is going to make it um, taste one way. So that's that's another thing I've learned as a uh, as a as a, folk as a beekeeper. Beekeeper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any other hobbies you've picked up? So yes, actually, just before COVID, I started doing something I've always wanted to do. And at night, um, my kids call me DJ Lullaby because I did buy the full DJ set and I only do it at home at night. That's not true. I did it one time in public and that was at the Shedd Aquarium uh, Gala last year. But this is a a late night hobby and it's very, very fun. Uh, Just before COVID, I was on a flight from Dubai to Chicago and I had an unusually good internet connection. And I like always wanted to learn about this. So I started watching YouTube videos on how to DJ, et cetera. The next thing I know, I'm on Amazon and bought all the stuff. And oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Now it was, DJ now Lullaby. DJ Lullaby. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that has been a, uh, a new fun hobby for me. And it's intense. I mean, you really got it. It's one of these things where, you know, you got to think what's coming up next. I got to match these beats. I got to bring it in yeah. at the right time. But it's a, I love it actually. I yeah. Love it as much as I want. We had um, a kid from Whitney Young DJ our block party two weeks ago and he was so into it. He was so good. You could tell he was super focused. And- oh yeah. You got to stay focused. And that's the thing. Like yeah. we'll have, um, we'll have people over, uh, we'll have people over and sometimes I'll do it, but then it's like, I'm out, right? I'm not yeah, participating right. in the thing because I got to focus yeah. on this. Um, yeah. It's not yeah. like just selecting some songs on Spotify and then getting back exactly. to your conversation. You're like in it. That's become a, a fun late night thing to do. So um, 
Where do you see the aviation industry going in the next decade? And what role do you envision AAR playing? What's going to be different 10 years from now than it is today? Well, I think generally speaking, it will continue to grow. Um, the uh, There's not a lot of industries that you look at it and just fundamentally, by, defin- by definition, uh, the numbers are up and to the right because more and more people on planet Earth want to tra- travel by air. And if you look at the delivery schedules, obviously COVID shifted the curve a bit, but it's still up and to the right. And uh, while the OEMs are having supply chain challenges right now, uh, they uh, the fleet overall in the world will continue to grow over time. I think the big trends obviously are efficiency and becoming um, becoming more efficient in terms of fuel, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, uh, all the research that's being done on hydrogen powered aircraft, et cetera. But then there's the whole eVTOL space. So uh, those would be the air taxis and things. And mm-hmm. we're familiar and Max AAR has made some investments in this space in the last few years. And it's closer than you think. I mean, there are companies that will be offering these types of services uh, by the end of this decade. And in fact, United Airlines announced a few months ago that they had partnered with a company and they'll launch, I think it was by 2026, I want to, maybe 2020, you know, 2026, I think. It's like tomorrow. But, yeah, which is like tomorrow, they'll have air taxi service from downtown to uh, O'Hare. When that happened, I texted uh, United CEO and I said, I want to be, as a guy that sits in that traffic every day, I'm like, I want to be on that first air taxi. Yeah, seriously. So I think that's an exciting, uh, exciting thing. Um, from our standpoint, certainly as the new aircraft type uh, and the maintenance profiles are defined, I think our company can play a role in that. But also in the aftermarket, in the maintenance world, there is a tremendous opportunity for digitalization um, and, uh, 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 and, and, and efficiency. There are so many elements of the business and support that are just archaic and paperwork that's required, manual processes and things to keep track of uh, aircraft maintenance records, et cetera. And we see a lot of opportunity to bring a lot more efficiency and accuracy into that process in the coming years. And again, given AAR's role in the industry and our position as an independent, we believe that uh, we're in a unique position to lead that. For sure. So last question, looking back on your career so far, what advice do you give to young professionals, people just graduating college, looking at that first job and what they want to do? What's your best advice for them? Well, other than, you know, work hard and, and come to the office, uh, which, you know, you didn't have to say a couple of years ago. Now you now you do. Um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by so many young people who are very bright and very, very capable that so earlier in the career make career decisions based on lifestyle choices. It should be the other way around. You need to make your career decisions so that when you get a little bit older, you can have the lifestyle that you want. And, you know, somebody says, well, this is the better job, but this is the location that I want to be in, or this is the better job, but I want to, um, you know, I want to work from home. So I'm going to do this. Those are not the right decisions to make. Um, the other advice I would give kind of related to that is, you know, think about, you know, think about the game of Monopoly. The way you win Monopoly is not by collecting rent. The way you win Monopoly is by collecting um, uh, real estate. And so, don't make decisions, career decisions based on a little bit of money here and there, because later on in your career, whatever seems significant now is going to be totally irrelevant. Um, think about picking up more real estate on the board. Take, take, take roles for the experience that it's going to give you, not the lifestyle choice, the experience that it give you and how that base of experience might serve you best later on. That's great advice. Rapid fire questions. We love to do this. Don't overthink it. We're going to go really fast. Okay. 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 Favorite vacation destination. 
France. One thing you can't leave the house without. Lame answer, but my phone. First thing you do in the morning. Another lame answer, but check my phone. What's the app on your phone that you can't live without? Shazam. The app that lets you figure out what a song is. That was the best invented app ever. I was the kid all through college that would like go up to whatever the DJ was playing and like ask him, like, you got to tell me what this is. This is amazing. So I love that. I want someone to come up with the version of Shazam where you can just hum it and it'll still figure it out. I think so. I, I want Shazam for like everything. Like what, what's yeah. that? Well, they have it for plants, but like what's that building? Let's, I just want to like point my camera, like just tell me what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So what song do you have on repeat right now? Uh, it's a song. Actually, I just Shazam, Shazammed. I was at an industry event this week. So get this. So I, 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 um, I was walking. I was at a restaurant and an industry event this weekend, and I happened to walk past the kitchen of this restaurant to go to the bathroom and they were playing a cool song in the kitchen. So I hung out there for a minute and then actually just went into the kitchen, held my phone up and shazammed it. And it's uh, by a guy called Neil Francis, who I had heard of, but Neil Francis. And it's a remix of uh, Music Sounds Better With You, which is an old Daft Punk song from, uh, I don't know, 20, 20 some years ago. Neil Francis, Music Sounds Better With You. I probably listened to it 50 times since uh, since Saturday afternoon. Okay. I'm looking it up right after this. All right. Um, I know you're a wine lover. What wine would you have with your last meal? 2002 Domaine Loire Musigny, which is a red burgundy. You've got an answer. I got it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite Chicago restaurant? Uh, we love Coco Pazzo. Oh, I do too. It's love so Coco Pazzo. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Beach or mountains? Beach. Book you recommend the most? I am uh, with four young kids deep into children's books. And so my favorite is I Want My Hat Back. Yes. <laughs> I love that whole series. My kids love those. Dan Clausen. That's right. You got it. You got it. Yes. You got it. I want so my hat back. That's my good. favorite. Yep. Yeah. That page where the where the bear is looking at the bunny and you know what's going to happen. That's, uh-huh. the best, that's the best page of all. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's yep. so good. And last one, your favorite emoji. I'm kind of lame when it comes to emojis. So... Uh, I would say the one I, it's just the thumbs up, but I never give one thumbs up. I give two thumbs up. Like I really, really like what you just said. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for talking to us today, John. This was super fun. I learned a lot. Uh, You gave lots of great advice to everyone. We have lots of great takeaways. Um, This was really wonderful. Margaret, thank you so much for including me. I I know you've got a a very uh, uh, esteemed roster of people that have done this before and I'm honored to be part of it. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.